If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. We look at verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. The birth of Jesus foretold. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God from a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Yesterday, my wife and I drove back from Branson, Missouri. That's where my family spends every Thanksgiving. We've done that uh, basically my whole life. I think there was one year that we missed it. Uh, but every year we go to Branson for Thanksgiving from Wednesday through Saturday. Uh, but on the way back yesterday, we had to stop in Waldron, Arkansas for uh, a friend of ours who was having a gender reveal. Uh, these friends were very dear friends of ours in Kansas City. He was a pastor at the church that uh, we attended and were members at there. Uh, she was maybe my wife's closest friend. And they lived like one street over from us whenever we moved into the house that we bought in Kansas City. They were very dear friends. It was a great day to be able to go to this gender reveal. They're having a girl. Not that you care, but they're having a girl. Uh, and it was a, a fun day to, to be able to see the shock on their faces. They were so sure they were going to have a boy. They were, they were pumped whenever they saw a girl. Because it's actually what they kind of were hoping it would be, even though they really thought it was going to end up being a boy. They had a taco bar. It was just a fun celebration. And I was thinking on the drive home, uh, how different that had to have been, what we just did yesterday, from what Mary got. Mary got a gender reveal. Uh, but hers looked absolutely nothing like what we saw yesterday. <laughs> Mary got a gender reveal from an angel who showed up and spoke to her. Uh, they got a gender reveal from a pinata that had pink confetti inside. <laughs> they found out the gender from the God of the universe saying that it was going to be a boy. We found out the gender from an ultrasound technician in Kansas City calling my wife and telling her the gender so she could buy the right color confetti to go inside the pinata. They are having a girl. Jesus obviously was a boy. It was 2,000 years ago. It was a woman who wasn't supposed to be able to have kids, wasn't in a position to be able to conceive, and was going to have a child anyway. They had been trying for months. They had been told over and over that they may not ever be able to have a kid. This is actually their second child. Uh, they through the, some of the miracles of modern medicine, were able to do some things to be able to help that process along and make sure that they were able to actually have a kid. Um, they were joyfully expecting and hoping that this day would come. Mary had no earthly idea. It was a very different kind of gender reveal, a very different kind of annunciation, very different kind of uh, birth 
foretelling that was going to happen. And that's before we even get to the differences in the nature of the baby. That's all on the parents' side, the, the shock, the awe, the wonder, the confusion. But whenever we look at the actual child that is to be born, they couldn't be more different between Christ, the perfect son of man, and Susie Joe, the almost perfect little baby for you. From our text today, we should be able to see four truths about the coming child that was announced to Mary. Four truths about who Jesus was going to be, about who he was in his nature, what he was going to do. And how different that is from you or I. How different that is from any other birth that's actually told. We see, first of all, that he is God. You can see that in the first four verses. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favorite one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. See, even in these first four verses, before we get to the actual enunciation that there's going to be a baby, that this baby was going to be the Son of God, we can see that this baby is God. There are signs, there are things we can pick up on in these, even the first four verses that are going to show that this child who is to come is God in the flesh. The messenger who comes is from God. The angel who comes to Mary is the angel Gabriel. He's sent from God. Angels are God's messengers. That's what that word actually means in the, the original Greek language. It means messenger. A messenger from God. That's where the message came from. That's what they do. They don't have their own agenda. They don't have their own message that they send. They come bearing the message of the one who sent them. And this angel, Gabriel, one of the only angels with a name, came bearing the message of God. And that message went to a pretty unlikely place. It says that it was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and her name was Mary. See, Nazareth at this time was a very insignificant village. It uh, had any to anywhere between 500 and 2,000 people in it. No more than 2,000. It had no real actual status. It wasn't a city that people would point out to on the map of Israel. It wasn't a place that uh, had a great reputation. There's, in one of the other gospel stories, it says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that's where the message of God comes. It doesn't come to Jerusalem. Does it come to a place with a lot of significance for the Old Testament? It's not a place that you think would receive a message from the Almighty. And the, the one who receives that message is also a completely unexpected recipient. She's a young, unmarried virgin. She had no real standing in Jewish, Jewish society as a woman, as a young woman, as a woman who had not yet taken her father, not her father's name, her husband's name, any status that he had. She had no children through whom God could have showed his favor. She wasn't who you would be expecting to receive a message from the God of the universe. But a messenger came nonetheless. And that messenger's message starts with just a simple hello. He doesn't come with judgment. He doesn't come with hate. He comes and just says, hi, greetings, O favorite one. For you have found favor with God. The Lord is with you. 
He just says hello. He tries to assuage any fears she might have. And then he gives her encouragement. His greeting is so favored one. Mary hadn't yet joined Joseph's family. So her name, her family, isn't mentioned. And she wasn't yet a part of his. She is not introduced in the story as someone who's important. She's introduced as someone whose identity hadn't even yet been realized in the society in which she was in. She was just a young girl who was not yet married. And yet the, the, the angel, Gabriel, he calls her favored one. Now, the beginning of the greeting, it says, uh, greetings, that's normal. Okay, that was like just hello. That was er normal every day. Anyone who you saw on the street would say that same thing. Oh, favored one? That wasn't something. That's not something you would typically hear. If I walked up to you this morning and said, Greetings, oh, favored one, Alan Williams, that'd be weird. Alan wouldn't really enjoy that. He would give me a weird look. Or if I just said hi, that would be fine. It's the, the, the oh favored one. That's where it starts to get strange. Particularly because of who the angel is talking to. Greetings is customary, but the title of favored one, the promise that the Lord is with you, that's not usual even for someone with status. That's not usual even for someone who would have been someone that you would have thought uh, was worthy of a great greeting. Greetings, oh favored one, the Lord is with you. The angel tells Mary both that she is favored and that the Lord is with her. And when he says the Lord is with you, that can have several meanings to it. First of all, obviously the Lord is with her. The Lord is on her side. The Lord is with Mary because he is for her. She is the favored one. She is one of his children. He's chosen to bless her. He's chosen to call her favorite. So, yeah, the Lord is with her in that way. But the Lord is also going to be with her in the sense that she's going to be carrying the Lord. She's going to be with child, so she is going to be bearing the Lord. The Lord is with her. She is with the Lord. But then the third option, the third way that you can read that saying, the Lord is with you, is actually as a fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. So the verse we'll look at in more detail later, but it's the verse that says that the child to become is going to be born of a virgin, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which we, we know means the Lord is with us. So... In Gabriel's announcement to Mary, he's already saying, this kid is the Messiah. Before he even tells her that explicitly, where he says, hey, this is going to be the Son of God, just so you know. In his greeting to her, he's already showing her, the Lord is with you, Emmanuel. Christ is coming, the chosen one, the Messiah, the one who was promised, God of the universe, is with you, Mary. She would have never expected to receive that kind of message. It's a textual connection showing that the child who is to come is God, who is coming to be with his people. It's a sign of God's favor toward Mary. It's also uh, showing that the Lord is with her. J.C. Ryle writing on uh, this verse, not, not my daughter, J.C. Ryle, <coughs> the, the, her namesake, the man whose uh, books I really enjoy reading. Uh, writing on this verse, said, By one woman, sin and death were brought into the world at the beginning. By the childbearing of one woman, life and immortality were brought to light when Christ was born. 
The Lord is with you, Mary. Greetings, O favored one. This is the favor of God that's shown toward Mary. In all of our right Baptist uh, pushback against the veneration of Mary, we don't worship Mary, we don't pray to Mary, that those are good things that we do not do. I'm glad that we do not do them. They are not biblical. But in all of our right pushback, we shouldn't push back to the point where we just say she's just a regular person that doesn't deserve any sort of recognition. The Bible calls her blessed. She's the favored one. She carried our Lord. And we can't fail to acknowledge the blessing that she received and her faithfulness throughout this entire story. The Lord who was coming came and was with Mary. He is God. We can see those, those instincts, those little pieces that are picking up in this story before we even get there. The angel who comes, comes to give good news from God. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Rather than leaving Mary in the fear and awe that we see in verse 29, where she's greatly troubled because she's confused. There's an angel. He's calling her favor. He's saying that the Lord is going to be with her. Rather than leaving her in that state, he continues, says, don't be afraid. Anytime someone in Scripture encounters God, anytime someone in Scripture encounters an angel, the first thing they always say is don't be afraid because it's scary. Every one of them were freaked out. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to handle it. But the first thing they always say is don't be afraid because the angel's not coming to give any sort of judgment or any sort of curse against Mary. He's coming to bless Mary. To reveal the blessings of God to Mary. It says, do not be afraid. For this message is a message of good news to you and to all people. For you have found favor with God. And that message is now being given to her. That this son she was going to bear is God. She received a message from a messenger sent from God. With tidings from God. It had an effect that God's message always had. Fear and awe. The message was from God to man of good news, which was going to cast out Mary's fear. The son she's going to have is God. That is the child who is to come. And that child who is to come, though he is God, he comes not to judge the world, but to save the world. He comes to save. It's the second truth we can see this morning. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He comes to save. He's a man. He's, this is going to be a child. This is going to be a real boy. This isn't some ethereal, non-physical person that you are going to give birth to. This is the word of the Lord in flesh. It's a real boy. He's truly man. He would be born. He would eat. He would sleep. He would grow. He would eventually die. So though he is God, yes, he, he's also a man. She was going to have a son. But this son has a name. His name is Jesus. That word, Jesus, comes from the Hebrew word, which means Yahweh saves. In the announcement of Christ's coming, his purpose for his coming is already shown. You shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name our God saves. That's who he's coming in marrying. 
soon as Mary finds out what the message from God actually is, she knows that this message is a message of salvation. Salvation to man from God through the birth of the son that she was going to bear. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is made clear even before he arrives on the scene. He came to save. It's in his name. Yahweh saves. God saves. Our God saves. Who he is, is Jesus. And who he is, is Yahweh, God, saving man. The son of Mary, who she's going to bear, comes to save. He's also the king. It's the third truth we can see this morning. Look at uh, verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This salvation, this message, with its humble beginnings, going to an unexpected place, to an unexpected person, with an unexpected message, is about the coming king. It, we can't think that... Because it's going to such an unexpected place, an unexpected people, with an unexpected message, that this means that the one who is to come isn't really that big a deal. The fact of Christ's greatness highlights the humility to going to such a place like that. And vice versa. Going to such a place like that highlights the greatness of Christ. That he would even stoop down that low to come to save you. So don't, in, in this message, in this Christmas season, when we think about the, the lowly manger, about the lowly virgin, about the humble shepherds, don't think that the one who is to come is not also the king of everything. He is the king. It says here that he will be great. Verse 32, he will be great. Even though he's born in a lowly state, even though he's in this backwater place in Nazareth to an unimportant woman, he's going to be late, going to be great. Ontologically, in his actual being, who he was, in his inner essence, he already was the greatest. He had eternally been the greatest. Anselm, one of the great uh, theologians of the church from the medieval period, he defined who God is by saying he is the being greater than which none can be conceived. God is the greatest. Christ is the greatest. That is part of what makes him who he is. He is the greatest by definition. He's God. There is none greater. You cannot conceive of one who could be greater. Christ the Son was great. He is great. And he will be great. And that greatness leads to some sort of renown, even as earthly state. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called. People will give him names. You're going to ascribe to him some sort of status. You see, only the greats get called names. Okay, they don't call me anything. They call me Nathan. <laughs> you know what they call Michael Jordan? Air Jordan. You know what they called Kobe Bryant? The Black Mamba. You know what they called Charles Barkley? Sir Charles. There's nothing like that for me. I'm just Nathan. Charles Barkley was Sir Charles. He gained a few pounds. They started calling him the Round Mound of Rebound. He got two names. That's how great he was. The greats get called things. But Christ, what he gets called, is the Son of the Most High. He is given the name that is above every name. 
the Son of the Most High. They're going to call him Jesus. Philippians 2, 9 and 10 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This one who is to come will be called great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be given the name which is above every name, that in his name, every name will bow. The one who is to come will be great indeed. And that greatness leads to a throne. He will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. His greatness will show him to be worthy of that throne. He will be made king by the Lord God himself, because that's who he is in his nature. And he receives that as a kingly inheritance. He receives it through his kingly lineage. In verse 32, the throne of his father, David. See, it mentioned earlier in the story that she was to be betrothed to Joseph, who is of the house and lineage of David. Christ is in a kingly line. He's going to receive a kingly throne. He's coming into a royal family, a family which has fallen on hard times. Joseph wasn't a king. But a royal family nonetheless. In Christ's coming, what God is doing is he's making good on the covenant that he made with David in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verses 11 through 16, which I think will be up on the screen for you. It says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God, in the coming of Christ, is making good on his promise to David to establish the throne of David over the people of God forever. Christ is the offspring who is prophesied here. He is the true and better David. He's from David's line who commits no iniquity, yet is disciplined. Committed no sin, yet is struck with the rod of men. Committed no trespass, yet is given our stripes. So his throne, his kingdom, are established forever. God is making good on the promises he made to David, to his people, to establish a kingdom with a throne which will never end. The reign of Christ is for forever. He who is to come, this baby who is going to be born in Mary, he will reign. He's no ineffectual king. He doesn't have a defunct kingdom. He's going to reign. He's going to reign forever. And where he will reign is over Israel. He's Israel's king, verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Over the house of Jacob. Jacob and Israel are the same person. He is reigning over the people of God. How could he possibly do that? 
What gives this son, who is to be born to Mary, the right to reign over the people of God? How could he do that? How can anyone but God reign over the people of God? How can this man who is to come, this baby, who is to be born to this lowly mother in lowly Nazareth, how can he reign over anyone, much less the people of God? Well, he can do it because he is God. God is reigning over the people of God, in Christ reigning over the people of God. He is inheriting the throne of Israel, which was always his. And his reign, his rule, his kingdom will never end. He can reign as king because he is holy. That's the fourth truth we can see about this coming son, which is going to be born to Mary in our story today. Look at the, the last few verses here in our story. He can reign as people over the people of God, reign as king over the people of God, because while he's a man, he's also God. He's the God man. Who he is is holy. He's not the natural man. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? See, Christ's birth is not by natural means. He's born to a virgin girl. This also is the fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. I mentioned that verse earlier. The Christ's coming, being born to this virgin, is the fulfillment of God's promise back in Isaiah that the Lord will give a sign where the virgin conceives and bears a son, and his name is God with us. His name is the Lord is with you. Where there should be no life, God is granting life. When God should be abandoning his people in their sin, he's coming and being with them. All of this is done through the birth of the one who is to come, of this Emmanuel. Of this Jesus, of this baby who is to be born to Mary. Mary's question here in verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She's not doubting whether this is going to happen or not. She's not saying, Gabriel, I don't think you know how this works. I, this, this, is, this can't happen. She's not asking whether it will happen. She's asking, how will this happen? She's accepting that it's going to, but her question is still... Given the facts, how could this be? How can God move like this? She's in shock. She's in awe. But she's continuing to move forward in faith. And Gabriel gives her an answer. That's what lets us know that she's not questioning whether this was going to happen. Her response here is very different from Elizabeth's earlier in Luke chapter 1, who doubts the promise of God. Mary accepts the promise of God, but wants to know how it will work out. So then Gabriel answers her. says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. See, Christ is not the natural man, and he does not have natural origins. Gabriel explains that this son is not going to have a literal earthly father, but he'll be born by the Holy Spirit. His birth is a miracle of God with no natural origins, only supernatural ones. And those supernatural origins are what make him holy. That's why he says, therefore, in verse 35. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That is his kingly lineage. That is his inheritance. That is his father's side. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Because of his supernatural origins, Christ is holy. He's not a natural man born of natural means. He's the supernatural man born of supernatural means. He is like us. He does have a human nature, but he is also set apart from us. He is holy in this regard. Gabriel makes clear that that difference in origin is how we know that he is the son of God, that he is holy in every respect. <coughs> that because he is born to the virgin, therefore he is holy. You see, the virgin birth is actually incredibly important to us as Christians. It's not an eccentric detail in scripture that we can just shrug off as some weird superstition they used to have. We can't act like it doesn't exist. Without the virgin birth, according to this text, according to these verses, Jesus would not be the Holy Son of God. He would not have been perfect in every respect. He would not have been without sin from day one. The virgin birth matters to us. When we sing about it, it's not just some weird detail in the text. When we sing about it, the virgin birth leads to the perfect life and death. We have to have the virgin birth. Because every one of us is born sinful. We're born through natural means. We're natural people. Which, after the fall in Genesis 3, means that when we are born, we are born sinners. We have a sinful nature. From day one, we are actively rebelling against the God of the universe. On day one, my three-month-old daughter, who I think is just the best. She's the coolest person I know. And I know you guys, so how cool is she? <laughs> I tell her every day she's the best baby there ever was. Right to her face. All the time. She seems so perfect in every way. But you know what she actually is? She is a dirty, rotten sinner in the deepest parts of who she actually is. And you know where she got that from? Her mother. I had nothing to do with it. It was all her. She got it from us. If you want to take the scriptural stuff a little bit more literally than I'm willing to go here, it would mean that she got it from me specifically. She gets a totally sinful nature from day one because she is born of natural means. But Christ doesn't have that. She was born to two dirty, rotten sinners who are hoping beyond hope in the righteousness of Christ for our salvation. And if she's ever going to be saved, she's going to have to do that exact same thing. But Christ doesn't have that. Christ, the one who's born of a virgin, he doesn't inherit that sinful nature. Instead, he's born of God by the Spirit, and therefore when he is born, he's born without sin. He's born holy through and through. He is set apart from you and me. He is completely different in that regard. While he has the human nature, he also has the God nature. He's the God man. And this is impossible. Look, if you were to ask an atheist, particularly at this time of year, what's the most ludicrous, ludicrous thing you've ever heard about Christianity? Uh, what you're going to hear more often than you would think is something about the virgin birth of Christ. To the natural man, to someone who does not believe, it just sounds crazy. 
it sounds like the weirdest scapegoat story that everybody just kind of went along with in the first century. It doesn't make sense to them. I've always thought that was funny that they really latched onto that. Like you're talking to a guy who thinks that God spoke and everything was. You're talking to a guy who thinks that the Red Sea parted in two and all of the Israelites walked through on dry land. You're talking to a guy who thinks that Moses spoke to the rock and water came out. You're talking to a guy who thinks that Christ died and was raised. Who thinks that forgiveness can be had in Christ. A virgin birth, sperm and egg, that's, that's nothing. When God continually does the impossible throughout Scripture, him doing one more impossible thing shouldn't be that shocking to us. That's why Gabriel says in verse 36, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. That's why Gabriel pivots to Elizabeth here. He's saying, like, look, this isn't even that crazy. We've already done this other thing. Elizabeth is old and she was barren, and yet she is having a child. So you, young virgin, Part for the course. This is what we do. It's who God is. Over and over, he's already doing the impossible in the old woman who could not conceive. So believing that he's also doing the impossible in the young woman who's not yet had the chance to conceive shouldn't be that crazy for us. The birth of Christ is crazy. It is impossible. And yet, it happened. That message that Gabriel gives to Mary here is an impossible message, but it causes an impossible response from Mary. Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. An angel appeared out of thin air and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. You, virgin woman, are going to bear a child whose name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will be called Great, the Son of the Most High. Nothing is impossible for God. Even your older cousin Elizabeth is having a child. And Mary's response to all of that is, all right, cool. She responds in faith. She goes along with it. That's what makes her the favored one. That's what gives her the, the blessedness of the Lord there. She just heard that her son is going to be the son of God who will reign on Israel's throne for forever. And she says, all right, if God says this is to be so, then let it be. I am the servant of the Lord, so let it be just as you have said. That impossible news about this one who was to come, who was God, who is coming to save his people, who is the king, and who is holy in every respect. And Mary produced a response of faith and hope. She responded believing. She heard the promise of the Lord through his messenger, and she had faith that what he was saying was true. She had hope that the one who was to be born in her actually would be the son of God. He actually was going to be the Messiah. He actually is the one who was promised. He would save his people from their sins. 
That's an impossible response. That's a response that can only come about through the Spirit of God working. It's a response that can only come about by encountering the God of the universe. That's what we need, that impossible response. But yes, Christ has come. Yes, he is God. He has come to save. He is the king. He is holy. That's the response we have to have. Faith and hope and trust in that message, in his work, in that good news. This season is about the good news of the birth of Jesus, who would come to save his people from their sins. We should respond to that good news the same way that Mary did, with faith and hope. We should believe, we should have faith that he was born of a virgin. He was born as a baby. He did live the perfect life that you couldn't live. He did die the death that you deserve to die. He did raise from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death. He did ascend into heaven, securing the promise of your salvation. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Faith in that, faith in his work, what he's done, and hope that in this season, as we await the coming of Christ, that he will come. That the faith that we have put in him will not be found wanting. That the faith that we put in him will be assured. We have to hope, just as Mary did, that he is the Messiah and he will save his people from their sins. That's the response that every one of us in this room must have to this message. I pray that you will today. Won't you trust him in this season? The one who is to come. The one we're celebrating every week in here, in every story you go into, in every gathering you have. Won't you trust him? Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the season, a whole month where we get to celebrate the one who is to come. We get to hope in the one who is to come. We get to trust that once he has come, he has come to save. Let us know that. Let us respond to that with faith and hope and trust. Let us give this season, this time, your son, the wonder, the awe, the reverence, the worship it deserves. Let us sing these songs, these Christmas songs that we've heard so many times. Does it matter to us? That the rod of Jesse has come to save his people from Satan's tyranny. Let us trust that better today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.